You guys are too early for me. I'm not ready. I could have hugged some more. In uh, 1464, uh, a sculptor named Agostino de Duccio was hired to sculpt one of what was going to be a series of uh, larger-than-life statues that would grace the roof of the cathedral in Florence. The plan was to craft the statues from single pieces of marble and that they would grace the top of the cathedral. And the reason they needed to be so large was so that people could see them from, you know, 80 meters away. After a very expensive and difficult attempt to ship back a 17-foot-long, 8-ton slab of marble, marble from the Apuan Alps, Agostino began to work on the statue, and he worked for about two years before throwing in the towel unexpectedly. He had already roughed out some of, the, some of his plan for the piece of marble. He actually even bored a hole in it in between what would be the figure's legs and abandoned the work, left the marble slab outside to be exposed to the elements for the next 10 years before the cathedral sought another sculptor to continue the work. Ten years later, another sculptor, Antonio Rosalino, was commissioned to finish the project, but no sooner was he hired and, and, and given the opportunity to inspect the slab of marble, he said, no, this, this particular piece of stone is a lost cause. Nothing can be created from this stone, it's, it's poor quality to begin with. The marble has these little micro pores in it that, that's just going to make it, it's going to make it really impossible to, to work with. Plus, it's been exposed to the elements for 10 years and someone else has already started to work on it. So I would be confined by someone else's vision. Poor quality of the marble. Uh, Rosalino said no. So this colossal piece of marble sat in the courtyard outside of the Florence Cathedral, laying on its side for another 25 years. And after 25 years, another sculptor expressed interest in the piece. This sculptor was only one year old when Rosalino turned down the job. He's 26 when he approaches this slab of marble that's been exposed to the elements for the last 35 years, it's already been rejected by two other sculptors, and the, the cathedral had the slab propped up on its end, stood up on its feet, as it were, to give the artist a vision for what it could be. It was Michelangelo who was chosen to complete the project that had been twice abandoned with a less-than-ideal, partially-carved, weathered-and-neglected piece of marble. In just three years, Michelangelo was able to turn that rejected piece of marble into the masterpiece that we know today as David. When he was asked about how he could turn an imperfect slab into such a masterpiece like David, his response was this, the sculpture is already complete within the marble block before I start my work. It's already there. I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. 
Good morning, Resurrection Church. Grab your Bibles. I'm going to invite you to join me in Ephesians 2 this morning. We're going to start a brand new series called God's Masterpiece. I just got to take a shot at Pastor Jake for a minute here. Um, He just walked in the room. I planned my series first. And if you were here on Wednesday, Jake started a series on anthropology, which is the study of what it means to be human. And in this series, God's Masterpiece, we're going to study what it means to be human. (laughs) But we're looking at it through a slightly different lens. And so if this topic interests you, and I think in the world in which we live, it should, uh, make it a point to come on Wednesdays. It's So anthropology is a word that, depending on your age, can either sound like a store in the mall or (laughs) or uh, it can can sound like some boring subject that you passed up in your undergrad, right? Um, It's way better than you think it is. It's way better than you think it is. So if if you have not joined us on Wednesdays, you're, you're not going to want to miss it. It's a, and it's going to be a wonderful companion for what we're studying these next three Sundays. As we look at what it means on Sundays, we look at what it means to be human in light of God's new creation. That's the specific lens we're looking at. What does it mean to be human in light of God's new creation, having been restored by Christ? And here's just... A, Here's what I think you should expect from this series. And I just, I'm just going to put some cards on the table because I wanna, just want to shoot you really straight. If you come for these next three weeks, and I hope you do, I think a little bit you should be ready to be bristled by the content of these sermons. Uh, and here's why I say that. I, it's, it is not my objective to offend anyone. It's my objective to say what is true. And I think truth is sometimes inherently offensive. And, and here's just the reality, is you spend six and a half, actually six, hour, or six days and 22 hours of your week swimming in the waters of the world outside the church. How can the ways of this world not work their way into your worldview? And so, because the world gets to shape your worldview, I'm going to say certain things that the world's going to disagree with. It actually comes up pretty explicitly in the text today. Paul's going to call out that some of us follow what he calls the ways of this world. I promise it is not my objective to make anybody feel called out or isolated. I just want to say what's true. And I want to invite you to appreciate the beauty of what is true. It's like asking a jellyfish to think about what life would be like outside of the ocean These are the waters we've been swimming in our whole lives. And so I want to invite you to see that as a part of new creation, you're called higher than the ways of this world. But offense isn't all I think you should expect to feel. I think if we can get past the initial offense of some of the things that will be addressed in the next three weeks, I think if we can get past that, you'll feel something of the relief of being home after a long journey. Something of the sigh of relief that comes when it finally clicks, right? You ever been trying to solve a problem and it's got all these complex parts and you don't really see how they all fit together and then maybe you're doing something completely unrelated, right? You're you're making dinner and it's just like, oh, oh, I get it. 
You've had that, you've had that experience. You've had that moment. I, I, think, I think that if we can get past the initial offense, I'm going to invite you into that moment of like, oh, oh, this is what I was made for. Oh, like the world around me might say something else, but this is good for me. This is good for us. It's good for us as new creation, created anew in Christ Jesus. And it might go against what, uh, what my friends would say, what society would say, but this is clearly res- resonating in my soul as something good for me. Some recognition deep in your spirit that you were made to reflect the image of God and the world around us and the worldview that they've given to you has robbed you of that. I think that there's something of the beauty of feeling like finally it clicks. Finally it makes sense. Something of the longing that you felt inside of you has found a place to land. So there should be something in this series that clicks in a way that it clicks when you finally understand something you've been working to understand. And today, again, we're exploring what it means to be new humanity. We're just looking broad view. What does it mean to be new humanity? What does it mean to be God's masterpiece? So this is where we'll start. I hope you found Ephesians 2. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 1. We're just going to go to 10. It's one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible. Uh, It's familiar territory, especially for those of us who've called Resurrection home at least since the fall, because in October we did a five-part series through the solas of the Reformation. And even though I told them not to, two of the ministers on staff who will remain nameless, Jake and James, uh, (laughs) preached this text anyway. So, um, but not the whole text, and we're actually going to take a little bit of a different lens as we approach it. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is our work for this morning. If you found it, I'll invite you to stand on your feet, if you're physically able, as we read the word of the Lord. Ephesians 2, 1 says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, why did he do all this? Why did he save us by grace through faith? Why did he do this? Here's why. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He is making a display of his goodness through you. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his, say that word, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before you're seated, would you pray with me? Father, hallowed be your name. In our lives and in our gathering, in our hearts this morning, hallowed be your name, Lord. Would you? do in this place what only you can do. We're asking you to meet with us. 
We're asking you by your Spirit to speak to us. Would you use your Word to mold us and shape us like, a, like an artist, like a sculptor molds and shapes? Would you use your Word? Would your Word be like a, like a fire and a hammer? Would it chisel away the stony parts around our hearts? Have your way in us, Lord. Lead us, guide us, transform us into your image. Do here what only you can do here. Reshape and restore us to reflect your image. We ask this thing because it's too big for us, Father. We can't do this without the power of your Spirit. And so would you do it in us? We ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen. You may be seated. I had to do some context work because did you hear the first word of our text? It was the first word of Ephesians 2, 1, and. Yeah, so we gotta, we, gotta, we gotta reach back a little bit so that we don't miss what the and is connecting us to. So in this letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul begins, he opens the letter, and actually in the Solas series, I used a portion of Ephesians 1. I told you it's one of the most beautiful texts in all of the scripture. Paul absolutely loses himself in worship. Possibly, again, one of the most beautiful texts in the whole Bible. He begins by expressing his gratitude for the... Well, he, he opens in worship, and then he transitions to expressing gratitude for the church in Ephesus. This is a church that he loves. They get three letters, by the way, and it's not immediately obvious, but Timothy is their pastor. Uh, Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and so they get the book of Ephesians and First and Second Timothy. Um, this is a church that Paul is deeply invested with. He deeply loves them. Um, and so he, begin, he begins to express some gratitude and immediately finds himself back in worship to the God who raised Christ from the dead and seated him in heavenly places. You'll find that in chapter 1, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, the right, at his right hand in heavenly places. That's important. Paul's praising God for raising Christ and seating him in heavenly places. That's a theme that Paul's going to borrow again in Ephesians 2, as he is going to literally make up some words. Paul does that all the time. I don't know if you've caught on to this. Paul just be making up words like hangry. You know, it's not a, that's not a Paul word. That's an us word, but that's kind of what he starts doing. It's like, I don't know what else to call this. So I'm just going to make up a word for it. So when he says in Ephesians 2.1 that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, he's drawing a contrast between Christ and you. Christ is alive. You, are, you were dead. Christ was raised from the dead, but you, you were dead. And then the second thing he's doing is he's standing on 1,400 years of Jewish history. And now again, I don't have time to teach you a class on the Old Testament, but I can at least frame for you where he's borrowing this language of death from because here's the objective experience that, that, that we would say if we were the readers of this text and you were dead and we would say, when? Right? When was I dead? I don't remember that. I don't remember being dead. And then, and then he, he attributes to these dead people actions that they were walking in the, according to the course of this world. 
Well, now, now, Paul, I don't know if you know much about dead people. They don't walk, except in like bad 80s movies. Right. Weekend at Bernie's, anybody? Don? Don was only 60 years old when that movie came out. So my guess is, my guess is that we're, calm down, you animals. My guess is that we're familiar with the words of the creation narrative in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So probably better understood, initially at least, that in the image of God, he created mankind, right? I'm not doing something unfaithful. I'm actually understanding the use of man in light of that last phrase, male and female, he created them. Male and female, each equally reflecting the image of their creator, and so what we see even from the beginning is humanity is the crown jewel of creation. Nothing else in the entire creative order is a reflection of its creator. Only humanity. And so we recognize this. There's something of inherent worth and dignity that comes with being human, right? In the creative order, human stands distinctly above everything else that's been created. Here's, here, I'll, I'll say it this way. If you were driving a car with your children in the back, or maybe, no, let's just say this. You're driving a car with your child in the back. No, you're, you're driving alone. And a dog is in the road and a semi is in the other lane. Do you choose the dog or the semi? Like, which one are you going to hit, right? Like, you don't want to hit that dog, but there's something in you of, of understanding that your life, your child's life, is of a greater inherent worth and dignity than that dog. I love dogs. I've got two of them. They're amazing. Like, you, you'll, you will hear me talk often about how much I love my dogs. Um, but, but they're just not as good as people are. Dogs are great. Just not as good as humans. There's something of distinct worth and dignity. Humanity is made in God's image. And so as we look at how God created in the order with which he created, let's just, we'll just do this together, right? So God created the heavens and the earth and it was good. And, and then God separated waters from waters and he established skies and seas and it was, and then he made the waters pool together and dry land appeared and it was, and he filled the earth with all kinds of birds and fish and vegetation and beasts of the field. And it was, and then on day six, he makes humanity and he takes a step back and he looks at what he's done and it is, it's very good. Yeah, yeah, that's the new Cameron translation. It's awesome. It's very good. We break the pattern and, and we only break the pattern. If, if the pattern's being broken, the Bible's inviting you to marvel at something unique. Only humanity in the creative order is called by God very good. Then in chapter 3, sin enters the picture. God has warned, shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They shall not eat of it, for in the day that they eat of it, they shall surely 
you guys are churchgoers. <laughs> right? Like, you, you, you know the story. And then they are deceived by the serpent. And in that moment, they exchange what is good for chaos. Up to that point, God has defined for them what is good and what is evil. And in that moment, part of what they're doing, you've, you've probably heard me explain this before. I don't have time to do a full explanation of Genesis 3. I think that that's a very complex text and there's more to it than meets the eye. But one of the things that's happening almost undeniably is that Adam and Eve are deciding that what God defines as good and evil is not good enough for them. They want to be the ones to define good and evil on their own terms. We can decide what is good and what is evil. And the problem is, in so doing, they have exchanged what is good for chaos. And suddenly, this is not good. When they chose to define for themselves what is good and evil, they were exchanging not just their idea of good, but their idea of God. By defining their own good, they became their own God. And so, following this event, the only creature, the only thing in all of creation about whom it can be said that it is a reflection of its creator, it's made in God's image, the only bearer of God's image cannot stay in God's presence. The degradation of God's greatest creation has begun. The stone is being left out in the cold and rain to be weathered the image being washed away and degraded, God warned them that in the day they ate of it, they would die. And I think maybe on some level, they didn't know what death was. And upon reading that, we might expect that the, that the, the ultimatum was one of physical death, but what they received was much worse. Spiritual death. Numb and senseless to the voice and the leading of God, numb to spiritual realities. And this is the state in which most people find themselves. And so when Paul says, and you were dead, that's what he's saying. He's not saying your body didn't work. He was saying your spirit didn't work. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, who did? We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By walking in sin, they were choosing to define for themselves what is good. Following what Paul calls the course of this world. This is what I was referring to earlier. This is part of what makes it so difficult to have a conversation like this, to preach a sermon like this, is the recognition that some of what I'm going to say, though it's biblically true, defies your culture's definitions of what is acceptable. And all of a sudden, we're in this conflict between our worldview and what the Bible says is true. And when we're presented with that conflict, we have to make a decision. Fence standing is no standing at all. As Pastor Ed would say, you can't ride two horses with one hind part. You got to choose. If you stand in the middle of the road, you get hit by both sides. You got to choose. We don't get to ride the fence here. 
But this is the waters in which we've been swimming our entire lives. This is what we know. It's the air we breathe. And the problem is that if we don't take a stand and resist the flow of the current of culture, it's going to be hard. We're going to feel the resistance. People are going to bump into us, but we've got to, we can't float on the river of the ways of this world. We have to place our feet on a solid foundation and let the water push against us. We have to let people bump into us because we have to take a stand. Otherwise, we're just more dead bodies floating along the river of the course of this world. But we see that the course of this world doesn't just flow arbitrarily wherever it wants to go. It's directed. The water's being directed by a spiritual being. This is what Paul says. We're back in Ephesians 2. A spiritual being who operates in what? The spirit who is now at work in those who are... So this is a spiritual being that operates in disobedience. Disobedience to who? To God. That's who's setting the, the course of the rivers of, of the world in which we live. And if we just float, that's who's leading the way. That's where it goes. This one's called the prince of the power of the air. It's the same spirit that stirred disobedience in the garden. David Wells, who's a, a professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, is a distinguished professor, says, you can, you can recognize the ways of this world wherever sin seems acceptable and righteousness seems strange. For anyone paying attention, this should feel painfully familiar. Painfully familiar for us. I can remember when I was a kid, we'd go to summer pool parties at my cousin's house. I had one cousin who had a pool, uh, and, and I was, my, my mom's one of nine, so we had a ton of cousins. Uh, and we would all get in this pool, and I was one of the bigger ones, and there was like two or three of us cousins who were a little bit bigger, and, and we would start to run as much as you can in a pool around the outer edge of the pool, <laughs> and the rest of our cousins would get in, in, in floaties, and, and they would just be pulled with the current that we would create. Uh, and, and if you stopped, if you stopped, you could feel the water pushing you and, and you would actually make the rest of the cousins mad because you would impede their ability to float in the current that you created. And this is what the enemy does. He doesn't, he doesn't lead us by pulling us. He leads us by creating a current and making it easy to just float along with the current that he establishes. Creating a culture where it's not okay to say certain things that if I'm being honest, I think all of us just inherently know, right? Like, like you can't say out loud what you actually instinctively know to be true, right? So here, I'm, I'm just gonna, um, if, there were, uh, if there were a pregnant woman uh, in our church and she was just kind of, standing around, say she's like eight, nine months pregnant. Well, I'd say she's three months pregnant, right? She's early. And there were some young men who were wrestling around and they got close to her, right? Would you or would you not say, hey guys, maybe not a great idea, right? Because there's a recognition that if they bump into her, she could fall. And if she fell, something bad might happen to this child, right? This is instinctual in us. We know that this is a problem and yet we can't say in our culture that unborn humans are worthy of inherent dignity and protection. 
We can't say that out loud. And like, maybe you heard me say that. You're like, oh, pastor. Oh, pastor. And what that is, is that's the ways of the world that's like demonstrating its influence in your heart and in your life. Because it defies something natural in us, right? Like, so if a, if a pregnant woman is assaulted and, the ba- and she miscarries, the person who assaulted her is tried for murder, right? Like we have this crazy double standard because on one hand, we recognize that this is life. And on the other hand, we, we live in a world where it's not okay to say it out loud, right? It's, it's the ways of this world. It's the ways of this world. And hey, like, so that I'm super clear, because I know the stats. I am not trying to heap shame on anyone. I am not. Like, I, I, don't, I don't actually want to make you feel frustrated or offended by what I'm saying. I'm just saying what's true. And, and I feel like I owe this debt to the young men and young women in our congregation who have not yet uh, had that conversation maybe between themselves, among one another, or even within themselves about whether or not they uh, are, are willing to carry a child to term, whether or not they are willing to bear the responsibility of raising this child. And I just think that if their pastor has never spoken about it clearly, then, then they kind of have, a, have a, uh, a, an understandable deficit in understanding of what life is. And, and so like, if you've gone down that road, hey, hear me say this so clearly, God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. His forgiveness is available. This is not the unforgivable sin right? Like, I just want to be so clear about this. And I want, to, I want to approach this with a type of tenderness that makes you understand that I'm not trying to bludgeon anybody. But I, I think this is evidence of the ways that the ways of this world, the course of this world influences even us and even us in the church, right? Like, we, we can't avoid this. This is the water. And, and if we take a stand, it's hard. It's hard. We feel the resistance and we feel people bumping against us and telling us that it's not okay to say these things. It's not okay to take this stand, but I think we have to. I think we owe it to God. I think we'll be accountable. I think we'll be held accountable on the day that we stand before his throne if we don't. So I think our colors need to be clear here. It's, it's It's like being in a culture where it's not okay to say that permanently changing a child's body or chemistry is child abuse, right? Like, like we live in that culture. I'm just, I'm just showing you how I think the ways of the world has, has pulled and influenced even us. Like, like you might be hearing me say this, you're like, oh, pastor, don't say the T word. Don't say the T word. Please don't say it. Please don't say it. I, I, I want to be able to invite my friends to church. And I just think we need to be able to have this conversation, Because by being silent about it, it's happening. It's happening in our schools. It's happening to your children's friends. Because nobody's speaking up and saying, no, no, we cannot mutilate children's bodies. These poor children, they don't know. And they're swimming in the waters of this culture too. They don't know. Have you heard the testimonies of the people whose bodies were mutilated when they were younger and they just wish that they wouldn't have? And now their whole life, their whole life is destroyed. They, they constantly need medical attention. They will never be able to have their own children. Have you heard these stories? Yes. It's tragic, but it's the ways of this world. It's the ways of this world. It's pulling, it's pulling. Lucifer's not, Lucifer himself does not have his hand on your life and and leading you, but he's created a current 
in our culture by which it's so difficult to take a stand because you're so afraid that you'll lose your job or you'll lose your friends. I get it. I get it. Like, I, I get that it can be scary, but if you don't take a stand, then you're floating with the rest of the dead bodies along the course of this world. I, I don't know how else to say it. I promise I'm not trying to be mean. Like, my heart breaks as I say these things. My heart breaks. This is the world we live in, and, and, and the world out there, you, ah, hear me, the world out there is not your enemy. They're our fishing pond. These are the people that we're trying to woo and invite into this place. And again, the course of this world has taught them that any voice that tells them that the things that they prefer might not be good for them is a hateful voice, and they shouldn't follow. We have to take a stand. Otherwise, we're just dead bodies floating along with the course of this world being pulled along by the current that's being established by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is not working the sons of disobedience. Help us, Lord. So that's where they and we once were. Paul says it's all of us. You were dead in the trespasses in which you once walked, among whom we all once lived, like the rest of mankind. This is the unfortunate truth for all of us. But James loves these two words. But God. But God. It's better than you think it is. It's so much better than you think it is. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. We didn't deserve this. God's not standing there with a baseball bat waiting to bludgeon you on the head. He's taking you and making you alive. He's not, he's not mad at you. Be, because he's rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Like, does that sound like a God is ready to beat you over the head? No, no it's way better than you think it is. Grace, you've been saved. Dead in sins, made alive in Christ. Paul is pulling the tension of the Genesis story into a New Testament context. You were dead because God said that if you ate of the tree of the fruit of the, uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you chose to define good and evil on your own terms, you would die. You did, and now you're dead. Paul's pulling the tension into our story, and then he's resolving the tension of the garden at the cross. At the empty frames, the same themes that he used in his praises in Ephesians 1. Remember what we said? That God had raised up Christ and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places? Well, listen to what Paul says now. And God raised us up with him. Paul made that word up. He took the word for raised up and put the prefix sin in front of it. S-Y-N. Like a synthetic oil or like a synthesis. It means together. Like, like God did it to Jesus and Jesus brought you with him. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly place. Again, that's another word, seated us with him. Paul made that word up. Took the word for seated in heavenly places and he put the, the prefix sin in front of it. He brought you with him. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Christ is raised. He brought you with him. Christ is seated. He saved you a seat by faith 
We are so closely associated with Christ that his accomplishments become our reward. Amen. Amen. In raising and enthroning Christ, God's power is demonstrated, but in raising and enthroning us, it's not his power that's demonstrated, it's the immeasurable riches of his grace. And that's the theme Paul continues with. It's grace. So in 8 and 9, he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. Now what's interesting here is uh, in Greek, words are connected by gender. And so if you want to know subject and, or if you want to know like noun and verb connection, what, what, what noun does the verb refer to? It's actually gendered language that'll connect that. And what's fascinating is that grace and faith here are both in the feminine case. So by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Hold on. Because, because this, it is the gift of God, that's neuter. It doesn't have a gender. And so it's both. You bring nothing. It is the grace and the faith that are together the gift of God. So that no one can boast. Now again, if you were here for the five solas, you got to hear Pastor Jake and Pastor James unpack these verses. So I'm just going to fast forward us to verse 10 for a little bit here as we get ready to wrap up. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. Now, depending on your translation, uh, and actually, I, I heard it. I, I asked you to use that word uh, as we were reading, and I heard someone say handiwork. Someone here is super familiar with the NIV, right? I'm not mad at you. Uh, so depending on your translation, you might get creation. We are God's creation. We are God's workmanship. We are God's handiwork, or we are God's masterpiece. That's how the NLT renders it. It's a word that's only used twice in the New Testament. So the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. We get a translation of the Old Testament into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And the word is used a couple of times, but univocally, uh, univocally, in one voice, right? The whole Bible, when this word is used, it's a reference to divine creation. Never human creation. Only divine creation uh, is, is this word used for. And the word, it's such a cool word, it's poema. Poema is the word. And to be clear, it's well translated. Like you don't, need to, you don't need to be a Greek scholar to appreciate this word. It's well translated. Workmanship, creation, it's something that is created. That's, that's literally what the word means. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it is only used in Scripture to describe divine creation. It's never used to describe human creation, only divine creation. And so we see in Romans 1.20, it's used here. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal clearly seen, being understood from poiema, from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Now, who made it? God did. So poiema is divine work. It's work that glorifies its creator, and that's why I love the word masterpiece for poema here. Because poema, you may hear this. Like when I say it, you're going to be like, oh yeah, I see it. Poema is the Greek word from which we get the English word poem. Poema, poem. 
Now, now it, we, we should not say that everything that is poema is a poem. That would be a wrong way to, uh, that would be falling into what's called the etymological fallacy. Just because that's what a word came to mean, doesn't mean that that's what it always meant. But I think that that's helpful. I think that that's a helpful lens because if poema is divine work, what is it then if it's not a masterpiece? What is it then if it's not like a poem where every individual detail, word, and syllable is carefully planned and crafted and accounted for? What is it then if it's not meticulously designed? These believers in Ephesus, messy though they may be, and they are, just like we are, they're a masterpiece in God's sight. Paul's not saying something that will be true for them in the future tense. He's saying something that is true for them here and now. They are a masterpiece. Paul calls them today by a title they probably don't see in themselves. Just as they have been raised and they have been seated. And they might say, when? When were we raised and when were we seated? But Paul's tugging on this theme, and we'll call this in kind of theological circles, the already not yet, right? We, we get this a lot in the Bible where things are already true about us, but not yet in our lived experience. Things that Christ already purchased for us that are not yet in our physical, tangible possession, but they are ours. We have been raised. We will be raised, but we have been raised. It is so certain that you will one day be raised that it's like it already happened. It's paid in full. You have been seated, and you are God's masterpiece. Even if they don't feel like a masterpiece yet, they are because Jesus says they are, and only the Messiah can turn messy people into masterpieces. It takes something of a master craftsman to look at a, a weathered block of stone and see what no one else sees. And see what others would look at and reject and say, it's too messy, it's too far gone. Surely no one can work with this. It takes a master craftsman to see, though messy and imperfect, a masterpiece in the mess family, eyes on me. You are a masterpiece in God's sight. He is not in love with some future version of you. He's not committed to some future version of you where you finally get your act together, where you finally put that sin away. He's not in love with some future version of you. He purchased you while you were dead. While you were dead in trespasses and sins. He saw you as a messy, deformed, weathered, beat up by the elements, block of marble. And it takes the eye of a master craftsman to see through the mess to recognize the masterpiece. And he sees in you what you don't yet see in you. And he's not frustrated. He's not angry. He's not tired of chiseling you. He's working with you, chiseling away that which is unnecessary and sanding off the rough edges that you might one day see in yourself what he already sees in you. 
You are His masterpiece. I told you it's better than you think it is. You ever feel like an overlooked and rejected slab of stone left out in the cold and people come and inspect you and they say, no, not that one. Not this one. This one's too far gone. This one sat out here for too long. There's no value left in this one. Someone else already worked on this one. I would have to work around a mess that somebody else made. No, not this one. This one's a lost cause. You ever, you ever felt that? You ever been there? A master craftsman shows up and he sees the same thing everybody else saw. But he sees past the mess and recognizes that veiled within the mess is the masterpiece. Slowly but surely, as you submit to His Word, as you come to the gathering, as you approach Him in prayer, He is kind and patient and willing to chisel away the unnecessary areas in your life that you might see what He sees when He looks at you. His masterpiece. Tim Keller says it this way. Do you know what it means that you are God's workmanship? What is art? Art is beautiful. Art is valuable. Art is an expression of the inner being of the maker, of the artist. Imagine what that means. You're beautiful. You're valuable. And you're an expression of the very inner being of the artist, the divine artist, God himself. You see, when Jesus gave himself on the cross... He didn't say, I'm going to die just so you know I love you. He said, I'm going to die. I'm going to bleed for your splendor. I'm going to recreate you into something beautiful. And I will turn you into something splendid, magnificent. I'm the artist. You're the art. I'm the painter. You're the canvas. I'm the sculptor. You're the marble. You don't look like much there in the quarry, but I can see. Oh, I can see. Jesus is an artist. And you, beloved, are his crowning achievement, his masterpiece. He created you in his image. You were left out in the weather to be eroded and deformed. And now he scoops you back up. He chisels away all that is unnecessary. And he reshapes you into something that he's seen in you all along. Something you fail to see in yourself. You are his masterpiece. So here's the question this morning. In light of this truth. In light of the fact that we are his masterpiece. If the Bible said it, it's true. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter how you feel. Like you might say to me, Pastor Brian, I don't feel like his masterpiece. And I'm telling you, he said you are. Just like... Michelangelo looking at a block of stone. He didn't have to turn that stone into David. He just said, had to set David free from all of the unnecessary stone. Here's the question. Where do you need to surrender to this master craftsman? Inviting the transformative power of his grace in your life. By grace you're saved through faith. 
You didn't just need grace when he found you. You need grace today. You need grace to be conformed into his image. And so where are those areas where you need to surrender to this master craftsman and invite his transformative power in your life? I I just want to give you 15 seconds. I just want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and just meet with the Lord, just you and him, for 15, maybe 20 seconds. And if you don't know what area you need his work, ask him to show you. Ask him to show you. He will. But if you know, if you know what that area is, I want to invite you to submit that to him right now. Father, help. We sometimes feel trapped in a prison of our own making. Trapped in our sin and in our sinful patterns. When we come to a place like this and we hear your word proclaimed, we can actually feel your spirit pulling us, leading us, guiding us, drawing us closer to you. Oh, Father. We feel unworthy. Remind us that we're fearfully and wonderfully made by you. Remind us that every every embarrassing moment of our lives is a moment that you're working together with all things to conform us into your image, to mold us and shape us into the people that you've called and created us to be for our good and for your glory. Remind us that you're working all things together in our lives. How silly of us to think that you would leave us unfinished, left out in the cold to be weathered by the elements. Thank you, Father, that you're not finished with us yet. (laughs) Thank you, Father, that your work is not finished in us. And even though we're a work in progress, and even when we feel like a mess, remind us that we're your masterpiece. That... You are the artist. We are the canvas. You are the potter. We are the clay. Mold us and shape us for our good and for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. All God's people agreed and said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord.